0: In Genesis 43 Before we, get, we begin, let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our study Just one more time here Father, thank you so much again for today But especially, Father, I thank you that it's Wednesday The day that we get to come together and open up our Bibles and study together as a, as a family Father, I pray that your word would be a blessing on us tonight I know it will be You promised that it would be You said, Lord, that your word does not come back without succeeding in the manner for which you sent it. And so I pray for success tonight, Father, not in my speaking or my teaching, but success in your word reaching into the depths of our hearts. I pray that you would stir us and shake us up and show us some new things. But God, as we often pray, don't just tickle our ears. Father, change our hearts and move us by the power of your word. Do by your Holy Spirit. And with your word, what no human can do. And just be our teacher tonight, Holy Spirit. We pray in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Well, our last study kind of left us hanging. Simeon, Simeon the brother of Joseph, one of the sons of Israel, is waiting. Simeon is waiting. He's imprisoned in Egypt in the house of his brother Joseph. The other nine brothers who had gone down... To Egypt to see if they could buy some food To have now gone home without Simeon sons Simeon For those of you who speak French So Simeon is waiting He has nothing he can do He just has to sit and wait Will my brothers come back? Are they going to even make the trip back? Am I stuck here for good? Who is this guy, this lord, this master in Egypt And, and what does he really want with us? Simeon is waiting Jacob Jacob is at home worrying He's got lines of worry all over his aging face. He's wringing his hands as if the world were against him. His frustration is great because his faith is weak. There's a parallel there. There's a corollary for all of us. The weaker my faith, the greater my frustration in life. It's interesting how that works. The greater my faith, the less my frustration. It's kind of a measuring stick we can tend to use. I find in my life when the frustration levels are high, I'm just having some belief trouble. So that's what's going on with Jacob. His faith is in a weakened state. He's worrying. Simeon is waiting. And Joseph, Joseph, remember he's in Egypt now. And he has risen among the ranks. He is second in command only to Pharaoh. He has got it going on. Joseph is in a great position. And Joseph now has his brother Simeon, older brother Simeon, in prison, in his house. He sent the other nine home. Joseph is not just playing games. Joseph is wondering. While Simeon waits and Jacob worries, Joseph wonders. He wonders what the brothers are going to do. Has 20 years of considering what they did to him. You remember what they did to Joseph? They kicked him out. They sold him off. Their own brother, a half-brother, but their own brother nonetheless, they sold him off into slavery in Egypt. And now, as he rules in Egypt, he is wondering, will he hear back from his half-brothers? Or will they leave Simeon in a ditch, just like they did him 20 years before? All three of these men are waiting in the dark. Simeon waiting, Jacob worrying, Joseph wondering, and they're all waiting in the dark. And I want to ask the question, I think I know the answer, but won't it be wonderful when the wait is over? Because at any point in our lives, we are at each one of these stations. We're either waiting, or we're worrying, or we're wondering what's next But there is coming a point in time when the wait will be over. When the truth will be known. When Jesus will be seen for who he is. Just as Joseph in our story is going to be seen for who he is tonight. We can get there. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We read this on Sunday. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, then face to face. Now I know in part. But then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. All we can really know for sure tonight, while we wait and worry and wonder, we can know one thing absolutely, and that is that God is at work. God is working. Romans 8.28, again from Sunday. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are the called according to His purpose. And Ephesians 1.11, a great verse to know. God works all things after the counsel of His will. So while you may be worrying in your life, or you may be waiting, or you may just be wondering what is going on, God is at work. He's doing what he does. He is working out his plan. And we see the same type of plan happening in the life of Joseph and among the sons of Israel. Well, let's study on. As the drama intensifies and unfolds before us tonight, chapter 43 and verse 1. Chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, so it came about, when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back and buy us a little food. Now they had already gone down once, and Simeon got stuck there, and they came back, and Joseph is fretting and worried, but now the food has run out. All the grain, the corn that was sent down with them, it's gone, and they're beginning to get hungry again. So Joseph stands up with his sons and says Look, you guys got to go back We have to eat Verse 3 Judah Judah spoke to him, however Saying, the man solemnly warned us You shall not see my face unless your brother's with you If you send our brother with us He's talking about the youngest, Benjamin Who Jacob would not send the first time If you send our brother with us We will go down and buy you food But if you do not send him We will not go down for the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. And then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know what he would say? Bring your brother down? And Judah said to his father Israel, Listen to this. Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. See, they all have kids now, too, and the kids are hungry. And Judah's saying, Man, you don't send us down. (laughs) Benjamin's going to die anyway in this famine. And our kids are going to die, and we're all going to die. We've got to do something. We can't sit here any longer. Verse 9, watch this. I myself, Judah says this is Judah, will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now, we could have returned twice. We could have gone down and gotten food come back, gone down and gotten food and come back. By now, after all this waiting, I will be surety. I'll bear the blame. I'm beginning to like Judah. In fact, over this last week, as I've read over and over chapters 43 and 44, back and forth reading and rereading and and trying to seek God's word in this and what he wants to have said, Judah just keeps popping up. Judah's doing good. Judah has matured. He is a man of great compassion. He is a man of great faith. And while Simeon is waiting and Jacob is worrying and Joseph is waiting, Judah, Judah is waking up. Judah is coming around. The lion is stirring inside of Judah. Remember by the way that Jesus wasn't just born in the line of Judah, he was born the lion of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah as he's called in Revelation chapter 5 verse 5. And in our story tonight, you're going to see this. The lion is stirring inside of Judah as he offers himself up, himself as a surety. What's a surety? It's a pledge, a promise. Maybe a better way to put it is a sure thing. I'll be the sure thing, Dad. Send me down, and I will be the surety. I will make sure that Benjamin comes back. Otherwise, I will bear the blame forever. Now, what's interesting is back in Genesis 42, in verse 37, Reuben pleads with his father to let them go back down. And what he says is, look, if I come back without Benjamin, you can put my two sons to death. Sounds pretty serious. But not really. And Jacob knew this. As Reuben offered his two sons to be killed if he doesn't bring back Benjamin. Come on, what grandfather's going to do that? Give me a break. Reuben, it's not going to happen. But Judah. Judah comes along here and offers himself. And Jacob can see and hear that he is serious. I will be the surety. I will be responsible. I will bear the blame forever. And I think that's an interesting use of the word. I'll bear the blame forever, Dad. It'll be on my shoulders forever. And Judah says, And the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who comes through the lineage of Judah, Jesus Christ, does the same. He bears our blame forever. Now consider this. In John chapter 20, verse 27, you can just jot this down. Jesus shows up, a resurrected Jesus. He shows up in the room. He just kind of appears. He comes right through the wall, which is very cool. And the apostles are all standing around, and they see him, and, and verily, verily, they were freaking out. And then Thomas isn't there, so a second time it happens. He comes in, and suddenly Thomas, who has just said, unless I see the scars, i got to put my fingers in the nail prints and in the hole in his side, unless I see that, I will not believe. These were real men with real doubts. Just like we would have been. And he says, I'm not going to believe unless I see those scars. What's interesting to me is that he does see the scars. Well, what do you mean by that? Think about it. Jesus is resurrected. He's in his glorified state. He has come back from the dead. He is now never going to die again, but he still has scars, holes in his hands and his feet. A slice in his side after the resurrection. Wouldn't you think he would just be all healed up? But he's not. It's also interesting in Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 that when John is having this vision of Jesus again, Jesus glorified, Jesus in his eternal state, Jesus perfect, he describes him as a lamb that looked as if it was slain. Isaiah 52 says that Jesus would be marred beyond recognition, more than any of the sons of man would be marred. And here in Revelation 5, 6, John sees Jesus and describes him as a slain lamb. What does a slain lamb look like? Wounded, striped, bloodied, broken. And this, this describes our Jesus. And in the same way that Judas says, hey, I will be surety, I will bl- bear the blame forever. Jesus is our surety. He will bear the blame forever. He has already borne the blame. At any time during eternity that you begin to doubt, you begin to wonder, you begin to think, oh, I don't know, maybe I'm not really good enough to be here. All you have to do is look at Jesus and see the scars that say paid for, purchased, paid in full, Jesus is our surety. Well, verse 11 going on tells us their father, Israel, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Notice again, it's their father, Israel, speaking. It's not Jacob speaking. He's Israel now. He's acting as one of faith, a man governed by God. He says, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts. I like pistachios. And almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Now you remember last week what happened. They went, they paid for the grain. As they're coming home with the grain, they open up their sacks and discover the money's still there. We didn't pay for this stuff. And now our brother's in prison back in Egypt. We haven't paid for this stuff. We're in big trouble. This is bad. This is very bad. So Jacob, Israel, excuse me, Israel here says... Take double the money. Take what you took the first time and let's double it, take it down there. That way if they ask, you can say, hey, we don't know how, but here it is. Take it. We want to pay for it. We want to take care of it. Verse 13, he says, Take your brother also and arise, return to the man and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, Israel says, if I am bereaved of my children, I am Bereaved. Now again, we talked about this on Sunday. Jacob is acting as Israel. He's not acting like old Jacob, the supplanter, the schemer. He's acting like Israel, the one who is governed by God. He is acting in faith. Jacob would say, all these things are against me. Israel would say, hey, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. If that's God's will, it's God's will. And again, just a reminder, this is the best way To live our lives. We call it Sunday an act of divine resignation. Resigning yourself to the divine. Saying, look, I can't handle it. I don't know what's coming tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen in my life. But God does and he has a plan. Therefore, I resign. I give up. I don't want control. It's the best way to live as a child of God. Whatever happens, happens. The Lord gives, as Job says. And the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now in these few verses, verses 11 through 14, we see Israel acting. And if if you're watching this, if you're sharp on this, you may have noticed something and it may bother you. You may notice that this man Israel who's acting in faith, who's acting as one governed by God, is acting in a way that maybe doesn't indicate faith. I mean, does this really work? If he really believes in God, why is he saying, take all these gifts? (laughs) Double the money. Maybe you can buy your way out of this situation. That sounds like Jacob to me. Well, there's a very simple explanation for this, which we'll talk about on Sunday. Verse 15. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin, then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now, when Joseph saw Benjamin, I remember this first time in 20 years, get the human element in this. Joseph sees Benjamin with them, and he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house And slay an animal And make ready For the men are to dine with me At noon And so the man did As Joseph said And brought the men To Joseph's house Now students of eschatology Listen up Eschatology by the way Study of the end times Okay Eschatological studies It's a big word Just means looking at the end Okay Studying it If you're into that And study those things And are aware of those things Which I would encourage you to be Listen closely here in the middle of this famine, we, we see a picture taking place. We've talked a bit about this. But the family of Israel is provided for. So you, you, we've seen that. We talked about that last week. It's the middle of the famine. What does the famine, the seven-year famine, represent or parallel in Scripture? Tribulation. The tribulation. Good. <laughs> There's always that look like, are you going to answer this question or should we?
1: <laughs> sure.
0: It pictures the tribulation. It it reminds us of seven years of famine, seven years of tribulation as talked about and described in detail, Revelation 6 through 19. But something we haven't mentioned is the fact that during this time, though they are provided for, they have no idea who this guy is who's providing for them. They don't know that. They don't recognize who Joseph is. They know that he's given them grain, sent them away, and now they've come back. They know now they're coming into his house and they're going to dine with him. He's providing for them. He's caring for them. But they don't know who he is. They're very messed up brothers right now. Very confused. Trying to figure this whole mystery out. Revelation 6 through 19 tells us that God will provide for Israel even at a time when they don't yet recognize him. Even at a time when they don't know that it truly is the Lord providing for them. Now, as we've said before, if you look at Israel in the world today, it is a mostly secular state. It's not religious Israel. There are Jews and there are Jewish things going on there. and, And all the holidays and everything are being kept, but it is kept in a secular way, much like many people look at Christmas. Just as, you know, a time for Santa Claus and, and giving of gifts. Not that I have any problem with that at all. Especially giving of gifts. You know, we have a few months, the shopping day. How many shopping days till Christmas? Okay. Anyway, I digress. Flip in your Bibles to Ezekiel 39. I want to show you something tonight that, that's impressive to me. Ezekiel chapter 39. Now you know I'm always looking for ways to insert teaching about the end times. Why would you do that, Rick? Because we're there. (laughs) And because we need to be aware and understand what does the Bible have to say about these things. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 39, we see an amazing prophecy. And according to this prophecy, we will see God is providing for, caring for, protecting Israel, even in a time when they do not know He's doing it. Ezekiel chapter 39 Beginning in verse 1. And you, son of man, God is speaking, prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, O God, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Anybody remember who Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal are? People groups? Rosh, Russia, exactly. Tubal, Tubalst. And Meshach, these are names that are Russian in origin, and if we trace back lineage, and we did this earlier in our Genesis study many, many chapters ago now, we saw that Rosh is Russia. When you see names like Gog, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal in scripture, it is referring to Russia or Russian peoples in that area, north, far north of Israel. So that's who this prophecy is about. Verse 2, God is speaking and he's telling Ezekiel, prophesy this, I will turn you around, speaking to Gog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, I will turn you around, drive you on, take you up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the people who are with you, I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God, and I will send fire upon God and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know, they will know that I am the Lord My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Now listen, folks. Nothing like this has ever happened in the history of Israel. Rosh, Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, all these peoples have never come down and invaded Israel in such a fashion. Nor has it happened that when they invaded, they were miraculously, supernaturally destroyed as by fire from heaven. It hasn't happened. And the Lord speaking in his holy word says, it is coming and it shall be done. So we have a couple of options here. A, God was wrong. Oops. (laughs) Guess we missed that one. He said he was going to do it, but somewhere along the line he changed his mind. Just determined, well, I know I prophesied it, but let's just let it go. That's one option. I mean, you can buy into that camp, but that's fine. The other option is it has not yet happened, but it will. It will. A massive invasion of Israel from the north. When is this going to happen? It could happen any time. There's nothing on God's prophetic timeline that would keep it from happening. One thing that's interesting, though, is the next verse in Ezekiel 39, and it's verse 9, that gives us a hint as to when I believe it's going to happen. Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons, and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears, and for seven years they will make fires of them. For seven years. I believe it speaks of the tribulation. I think this invasion of Israel is going to happen prior to the seven-year tribulation. And these fires of all these weapons will be burning outside of Israel. They will start them burning. That's a lot of weaponry, folks. But they will burn for seven years during that time of the tribulation. What's the point of all this? According to this prophecy... If you think about how the tribulation works, those of you who have studied this, when is it, if you can recall, when is it that the Jews begin to really believe in Jesus? Do you recall when that happens during that seven-year tribula- tribulation period? About halfway through, three and a half months, the covenant, the covenant, Antichrist signs with Israel is violated. It's broken. You can read about it in Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 27. Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel Hey, a covenant of peace for how long? Seven years A seven year covenant of peace And Israel thinks this is great And I think it's all tied up There's so much going on here But this invasion from the north Israel is looking for a savior The Jews are still looking for Messiah Many of you know this But Islam, the Muslims are looking for a Messiah type figure Also to come before Muhammad supposedly returns According to the Quran. It's perfect. It's a setup. Antichrist is going to slide right into that picture. Israel, who will probably just have been invaded, somehow miraculously saved, but they are frightened beyond their wits. By the way, during the last war, right before it all started up, you remember they were passing out gas masks in Israel? The average citizen in Israel was scared out of their wits. How do you think they would be if an invading force was coming at them? Destroyed or not? tiny little Israel what's going to happen to us scared to death frightened and in comes this man of peace hey I got it covered we're going to be good we're going to sign a seven year peace treaty where do I sign but halfway through three and a half years into the seven year period the covenant the covenant is broken it is at this point Revelation chapter 12 tells us that the Jews finally recognize realize begin to believe in Jesus, and for three and a half years, Jesus protects them. But that's halfway into the tribulation. And here in Ezekiel 39, we see Israel being miraculously, supernaturally protected by God before they believe in him, before they give their lives to Jesus, in the same way in our story with Judah and Joseph. And all the brothers, Joseph is caring for them, providing for them, protecting them even before they even know who he is. By the way, the same thing happened for you and me. Jesus was providing for us long before we chose to accept his position as Lord of our lives. And I'm not just talking about during your lifetime, but eons before. 2,000 years before I made a decision for Christ, He made a decision for me. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made provision for us when we most needed it. Not when we were better, not when we were clean, not when we got our lives in order, but when we most needed it. God was providing. God was protecting. God was laying out the plan. It's a great thing to share with your friends who don't believe in Jesus yet. Tell them this. Say to your friends who who don't believe in the Lord, hey, you may not believe in Him, but He believes in you. He believes in you so much, loves you so much, that 2,000 years ago He gave His life on a cross not even knowing whether you would accept Him or not. That's how much God loves us. He provides for us even when we don't know Him. Well, verse 18, back in our story, back to Genesis 43. So the men come into Joseph's house and verse 18 tells us the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we're being brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. Hilarious People who are afraid Think really stupid thoughts And these guys are thinking Really stupid thoughts They're thinking like donkeys If you get my drift Actually their thinking Isn't donkey like It's very very human Amazing It's a sad commentary On the heart of man That people still hold this view Of the Lord Jesus Joseph is providing a great meal He's invited them into his house To dine with him And they're saying, oh, it can't be about dinner. There's danger here. Danger in the dining. We're going to sit down at the table, and next thing we know, we're going to be slaves. This is what they're thinking, and so often people approach Jesus the same way. And if I show up at that church, they're going to come after me. (laughs) That Jesus, he's going to get me. (laughs) I'm going to stay away from there as far as I can. Because I don't want to sit down to a meal, and the next thing I know, I'll be singing praises. I'm reading my Bible, and my whole life is ruined. Revelation 3:20 tells us, "Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him, and we'll dine with him, and he with me." And the average person looks at that and goes, "Okay, what kind of dinner? What are you serving? What's it gonna be, Jesus?" Am I going to dine in danger If I come before him he'll fall on me He'll force me to be a slave I won't be able to live my life My way on my terms anymore And to some degree they're right You won't But believers Who wants to Anybody Man not me If I start going to church he may seek occasion against me He can't want me just to be with him Can he Is that possible, that maybe Jesus just likes me? Well, Joseph's brothers are about to discover the same thing that someone who comes to Jesus always, always, always discovers. Amazing grace. Romans 5.20 tells us where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Joseph's brothers assume... The worst. They think this Lord in Egypt is plotting to take them down. They don't know Joseph very well, do they? And if someone looks at Jesus with that same attitude, with that same heart, he's just plotting to take me down, my response is, you don't know my Jesus very well. Because that's not the heart of a Savior. It's another great line of evangelism. If you're talking to someone about Jesus, just say, if you only knew Jesus like I know Jesus... A lot of detour questions, we've talked about this in the past. People love to throw out the detour questions about evolution, or the dinosaurs, or the pygmies. What about the pygmies? I mean, if he loves everyone, what about them? They haven't heard about them. Are they going to go straight to hell when they die? Look, I don't know about the pygmies. I don't know a whole lot about evolution. I can't explain the dinosaurs maybe the way you'd like to have it explained. But I know Jesus. And you got to know Jesus. That's the main issue. Jesus is the issue. Remember, Jesus made himself the issue. Now, well, that's where the rabbis began to break faith with Jesus. That's where they began to go other directions, because Jesus started making it all about himself. Who do you say I am? But who do people say the Son of Man is? Matthew
1: 16, 18. Who do you
0: say, and it's not up there, who do you say I am? Jesus made it about himself about knowing him and man if people just knew Jesus would they want to do anything else would they want to be with anyone else second Peter chapter 1 verse 5 Peter wrote applying all diligence in your faith supply it moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Now listen, for if these qualities are yours, and they are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be fruitful in the knowledge of Jesus? The fruitful knowledge of Jesus is the knowledge that is shared. The knowledge that is told. The knowledge that overflows. The key is this. If you want to be a great evangelist or if you're scared to death of evangelism, the whole idea of knocking on doors, which you know I'm not a big proponent of myself. True evangelism just happens in relationships. And you know what? Nobody has to be afraid. Everybody, everybody has been called to be an evangelist if you're in Christ. Oh no. So do I have to go like to special classes or something to learn how to do this? No. You want to know how to do it? I'll tell you right now. Work on knowing Jesus. Because the more you know Jesus, the more you're going to want Jesus to be known. It is a natural progression. And your knowledge of him will make you, as Peter says, fruitful. Well, they don't know who Joseph is. Going back to verse 19. So they came near to Joseph's house, steward. And they spoke to him at the entrance of the house. They're still knocking. They're still shaking in their boots. Verse 20, they said, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we brought it back in our hand and we've also brought down other money to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Verse 23, I love this. He said, the steward, the servant of Joseph says, Be at ease, literally peace be to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them and things are beginning to look up. Have you ever noticed how God always replaces fear with peace in the scriptures? He has this tendency when we start to get wide-eyed and fearful to say, hey, 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 hey! Peace. Peace be with you. Peace be still. I come to bring you peace, Jesus says. Not as the world gives you peace, do I give you peace? I give you an everlasting peace. And Jesus loves to bring peace. When we're afraid, that's what the peace of Christ does. Alleviates our fears and our worries and our doubts and our concerns. By the way, this whole thing about the money is kind of conical. Because they did think they paid for it, they left, they find the money, they bring it back. And the steward says, oh, I knew it all along. I'm the one who put the money back in your sacks. And it's a great picture of how God deals with finances in our personal lives. Hard to believe until you've started to really experience it, but it's amazing and it's true that you truly cannot outgive God. You can't do it. You can't give more than God can return to you to make sure that you're all right. When you put money in, whether it's a church or to a missions organization or to some kind of a servant project, when you begin to invest yourself financially speaking in the kingdom, it's amazing that you go heading on down the road and you discover down the road ways, the money's back in your backpack. God put it back. Well, I just wrote the check And he provided over here And you know what The only people who don't believe that Are people who have never tried it And I don't know if that's you Because I have no idea What you give Or where you are with that But I'll tell you what For me For 35 years of my life I did not believe it No way Come on You're telling me If I write a check For X amount Percent of my income And I drop it In the plate on Sunday That sometime during the week The money's going to come right back to me Yeah right Whatever well I'm not saying it'll come back that week, and it may not come back in a month, and it may be six months, but what's amazing is it always comes back when you need it. God always provides for everything that we need. You cannot outgive Him. You can give the Lord your silver, your tithes, your offering, and it always ends up back in your pack. Listen to this, Malachi, the Italian prophet. Chapter three, Malachi. chapter three verse 10. God is speaking. And listen to God's words. If you don't believe me, just listen to what he says about this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes says the Lord of Hosts. Now, what's really cool about this is God says two promises here. If you'll trust me, and he's talking about 10%. I don't know how many people do that. But that first time you do it, writing a check for 10% of your income, it's like freak out time to the max. It's very frightening. I will never be able to replace this. And it never works out on paper, ever. But God promises two things, guarantees. And he says, and he rarely says this, test me. Try it out. Give it a shot. See what happens. The two promises are, number one, he's going to open the storehouses of heaven. Now, I have a bank account at Horizon Bank. But if I'm given the choice between Horizon Bank and the storehouses of heaven, I'm going with heaven. just want you to know right now, when the Dow falls, I'm okay. Everything's good there. If I'm watching the NASDAQ and it's getting shaky. Hey, I got the storehouses in heaven. And no terrorist can bomb that. Nobody can take out that guarantee, the storehouse of heaven. That's the first thing he promises. But the second thing is very cool. He says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. You know what that means? It means God will provide for you in such a way that maybe you don't need the money you thought you needed. He may make your car run longer. He may somehow make your plumbing last longer, even though it rattles and shakes every time someone flushes. He may provide for you in ways that you can't even imagine, but what he promises is that he will provide. Rick, why are you going on and on about this? Because I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it until five years ago when my family moved up to this area. And we were at a point in our lives, kind of, I don't know, you could say foolishly, we wanted to jump off the cliff and see if God would catch us. Literally. I was at that. That's what I wanted to see. Will God take care of us? Now, I can't explain how, but at the church that I worked at in Anacortes, before we started this one, Pedalgo Community Church, we had three full-time pastors. When I moved up here, there were 30 people attending. And in four years of working at SEC, the three full-time pastors never missed a paycheck. We all three worked full-time. That's crazy. That's absolutely insane. That makes no sense whatsoever. Except that the Lord says, Test me. Try me out. See if I won't open the storehouses. I'll tell you what, when it came time to make a decision, to answer a call that God put on my heart and on several of your hearts to start the Bridge Christian Fellowship, I had no doubt about whether or not my family would survive. Why? Because I spent four years watching God do it? I trust this And all I want to do Is pass on to you That trust By the way If you're thinking Okay How soon is he going to start Passing the bags?
1: <laughs>
0: the bridge is doing great This is not because Things are a little tight We've got like 25,000 in savings And we're six months old How does that happen? And that's because of Generous trusting people and because God is blessing this work, I'm speaking to you personally. And well, I'm going to hammer you on the heads with it. I'll let it go. We'll talk about it actually a little bit more on Sunday morning because there's some very interesting things how God deals with this and takes care of us. And I just want you to know the promise. I have never been less financially stress-free than I am now. The last five years of my life, we don't care. We just, it just doesn't matter. And I want to share that. Man, I want you to live that way. Well, back to our text here. Verse 24. The steward has just said, hey, be at peace. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. It's interesting. The steward understands where it came from. It didn't come from Joseph. didn't come from Egypt or the coffers there. No, it came from God. Your God. He's taking care of you. Well, then he brought Simeon out to them. Verse 24. And then the man brought the men into Joseph's house. And he gave them water and washed their feet. And he gave their donkeys fodder. And so they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. I can just see them putting this thing together, getting the pistachio nuts just right in the mirror. Okay,
1: who's got the aromatic gum? Get it over here. Come on, guys. This has got to be perfect.
0: Because they're still afraid, they're still worried. They had heard that they were to eat a meal there. Verse 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present, which was in their hand. And they bowed to the ground before him. That's the second time Joseph's dream is fulfilled. And when Joseph... Oh, and then he asked, verse 27, he asked them about their welfare and he said, Is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said... Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And for the third time, they bowed down in homage. This is wonderful. And as he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he looks at Benjamin and says, may God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out. For he was deeply stirred over his brother And he sought a place to weep Then he entered, entered his chamber And he wept there He wept This is heavy drama This is deep emotion For twenty years Joseph has thought about Wondered about Cared about his younger brother His little bro, Benny He hasn't seen him Twenty years And now he sees him for the first time And it's just, he's overwhelmed He's overwhelmed it's like on those old talk shows when they would bring back together the, you know, the siblings who hadn't seen each other for you know, decades. Well, here it's happening. And Joseph is overwhelmed with it and rushes out of the room. Now, the brothers have got to be just going, what is up with this guy? This is the most bizarre thing that's ever happened in our lives. And it was. And he rushes out and he weeps. And it's interesting to notice that one who is greater than Joseph, a greater than Joseph, also wept three times. You can just jot these verses down. John chapter eleven, verses one through eleven. Jesus wept over a death. He wept over a death, the death of Lazarus. And in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. See, you thought all these verses meant we're going to read every single one of those? No, we're just flying by a few of them. See? We can This is good. Luke nineteen, forty one through 44. We can read them all if you want. Should we go back and just anyway? Luke nineteen forty one through forty four, Jesus wept over a city. He wept over a city. He wept for Jerusalem. And then in Luke 22, verses 39 through 46, Jesus wept over our sins in Gethsemane. All three times Jesus wept, he was weeping for his brethren, his brothers, his sisters. Joseph wept three times that we have recorded in Scripture for his brothers and his sisters. Interesting parallel. But I got to ask the question. Here's Joseph. He's, he's up in his chamber. He's weeping. He is just—it's it, awful. And verse 31 says he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself. And he said, "Serve the meal." Why, Joe? Why aren't you talking to your brothers? I would have broken down by now. I would have said, "Hey, it's me! <laughs> Surprise! It's me! You dirty rotten scum! <laughs> you slime balls!" You slaves, see if you like it for 20 years being slaves. I'm going to send you to Potiphar's house. Watch his wife, because that's going to be a mess. See what you did to me. And we'll put you in prison. See if you can interpret dreams, losers. But Joseph doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Joseph maintains his composure. When he has to weep, he gets out of there and weeps. He doesn't break his cover Why? Hear me on this. There's still work to be done. There are still things that need to happen to the brothers in the hearts of the brothers that that you will see tonight, I hope. Still work to be done. The Lord through Joseph is preparing a people much bigger than just this little family situation game. The Lord is preparing a people Israel. He is preparing 12 boys to be leaders of 12 tribes who ultimately will be the people of Israel throughout all of history and then into eternity. And that preparation takes time. And Joseph Joseph is very aware aware of the Lord and I believe the Lord is working completely through Joseph to bring this about, to prepare this people long term. And it's the same way with us today. Jesus said, John 14:3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you can also be. And I say, great, Jesus, how about now? <laughs> Why not this moment? Bring me home. I mean, you're preparing a place so I can be there. Why not just take me? Well, listen. Just before that promise in John 13:35, before he pro- promised to prepare a place, he said, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Why not, Lord? The next verse Jesus says, John 13:34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this... All men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, Jesus right now, as I speak, is preparing us a place. But he's also preparing us for the place. He's preparing the place. He's preparing us for the place. He's getting us ready. Sunday afternoon, I set out to mow the lawn. Didn't want to. Didn't really care to. It was one of those hot days we've been having lately, and I'm looking forward to the rain myself. Don't know about you, maybe you're a sun bunny, that's great. I want a little rain. I want it cool. I want the colors to change. Anyway, I digress again. Sunday, I'm out there to mow the lawn. And Cheryl's mom and dad brought along a lawn mower. It's great. It's wonderful. It's gas mower, you know. So I crank the thing up, and I get out there and start pushing this thing, and I realize it's not one of those power mowers that rolls on its own. i got to push it. Thanks. So now, so now I'm out there, I'm pushing this thing. And I kid you not, the house that we're renting, I should have looked. The house is great, the location is wonderful, but there's like four and a half acres of grass around it. At least it felt that way on Sunday. It's probably more like, you know, point... Oh, 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 one acre, but it felt like a lot, and it's on a hill. So I'm pushing this thing up the hill, and I'm getting that, you know, that really gross sweat where it comes down like a V in the front and a V in the back, and I'm just going, I'm a pig, and I'm gross, and I don't like this. I'm not happy about this. And I got up around behind the house, and there's a whole another 12 or 13 acres over there. <laughs> So now I'm pushing this thing around, back and forth, and I'm just getting frustrated, but I'm getting it done, and I get down, and I have, I kid you not, about a ten foot long by six foot wide, pie-shaped area of grass left, and the mower ran out of gas. Now... This is Pastor Rick in full view of the whole neighborhood, and I've got the lawnmower and I'm just pushing it. Going, That's fine. <laughs> where's the where's the the chipper? I'm just gonna chip this ground. just it. And I and I got the weed eater out there. You know, and the dirt's flying up and all this. Cheryl's watching the whole thing take place from the porch, and she kind of gently says, um, "Honey, the neighbors are watching." <laughs> Pastor Rick said with his scriptural best, I don't care, they can watch all they want, that's fine, yes, I'm a pastor, whoa, who cares? (laughs) There's still a little work to do (laughs) on this guy right here. And the good news is while Jesus is preparing me a place He's also preparing me for the place And I can tell my kids with all honesty Hey don't worry about daddy going home to heaven too soon Because there's a lot of work (laughs) yet to be done But listen to this When I'm ready Whenever that is I'm going When God looks at my life and says He's ready He will take me Now that's not a statement about salvation folks Every single person who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Even if it's the 11th hour. Even if it's the last second. Right before Jesus comes, somebody is going to say, I accept you, Lord, and their life is going to be a shambles and messy and ugly and and
1: pitiful, and they're going to go straight
0: to heaven. That's salvation. But I'm talking about preparation. And in my life, there's still more to be done. But when I'm ready... I'm going, whether it's through death or through the rapture. I prefer the rapture. But either way, when I'm ready, I'm going to go. Verse 32. So Joseph washes his face. I don't know how we even got where we got. He washed his face and came out and controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. And so they served him by himself. And them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves... Why is that? Well, it tells us because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Moses is writing about this. He knows a thing or two about Egypt, he understands the Egyptians. That insert there shows us that man was already drawing lines and borders and expressing racism long, long ago. It was already happening. The Egyptians wouldn't eat with the Hebrews. And Joseph is lord of the house, so Joseph's at a table, the Egyptian servants are at a table, and the brothers are at a table. Interesting. Well, then it says, they were seated before him, verse 33. Listen to this. The firstborn, according to his birthright, and the youngest, according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in astonishment. Why is that? Because there's no way anybody could have figured out what their birthright was. They were lined up at the table in perfect birth order. The chances of them doing that would be 1 to 40 million. One out of 40 million chances. Literally 39, 39 million. Sorry, 917,000 possible seating combinations between these brothers. And Joseph got it right on the first one. But they don't know it's Joseph. So now they're looking at each other going, Oh, this is really bad. This is bad. We're dining here. He spied us out. He knows everything about us. How does he know all this stuff about us? Because, duh, he's your brother, boys. I just hate that we. How are you guys doing on time? Anybody got a rush? Okay, that was your chance. All right, turn to Matthew chapter twenty. Matthew twenty. While you're turning there, I'm going to read you verse 34, but flip on over to Matthew chapter 20. In verse 34, it tells us that Joseph took portions to them from his own table. So Joseph is now serving them. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Interesting. He got five times as much. Now they've come out of famine. All of the boys are hungry here. But Benny gets five times as much. So they feasted and they drank freely with him. Now, Matthew 20, chapter, uh, verse 1, tells us the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells a parable. Says so it's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his field or into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to those he said, Hey, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you, and so they went. And again, he went about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, and did the same thing. And at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said, Well, go, go into the vineyard too. Verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired, with the, about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. Same amount as everybody else. They'd only worked an hour, folks, and they got the same exact pay. Verse nine, when, uh, verse 10, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, well, these last men worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day? It's not fair. Or in the words of Scar, life's not fair. From the Lion King. <laughs> verse 13, the great theologian Scar. But he answered and said to one of them, friend... I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own, or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Let me tell you something. It is harder for us, harder for us to rejoice with those who rejoice than it is to weep with those who weep. Christians, I'm I'm talking to us. It is harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. It is harder on me to look at what someone else got, to look at their stuff, to look at their blessed life, and be happy about it, than it is when everything's going wrong. Man, when everything's going wrong, I'm there for you. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that your house just caught fire and burned down. I'm sorry that you just lost your job. I'm sorry that your parents have passed away and you're struggling. I'm so sorry. And then I go back to my nice, warm, comfortable house, call my parents on the phone, talk to them about my job, and everything's good. But when someone's doing better than I am, that's another thing. Envy begins to creep in Now what's going on here with Joseph Is more than meets the eye He's not just feeding Benny extra Because he really likes him a lot Because he loves him more than the others This is another test of Joseph On his brothers How will the brothers respond When the youngest gets more When Joseph was the youngest How did they respond when he got more Not good He was given the big-sleeved coat. He was given more responsibility. He was clearly favored by his father. So Joseph, in his plan here, favors Benjamin in front of his brothers. And don't miss this. Joseph was watching. Joseph at his table is paying close attention. How are the brothers going to treat Benjamin? How are they going to respond? What are they going to do as Benjamin chows down on five times the food? Can I have some more biscuits? Oh, yeah, more for Benny. Give him more. More potatoes? Yeah, good. Another steak, have it. Joseph is watching to see if any envy, jealousy, or resentment may pop up among the older brothers toward the younger brother. Are these men changed? He's already heard their confession back in chapter 42. They confessed, not knowing he was listening in. They confessed to having dumped him. So he's heard that. By the way, it's one of very few confessions in the entire Old Testament that's actually written out in chapter 42. So he heard the confession. Did they mean it? Are they living it? Are they acting it? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Jesus says, even as I have loved you. Whether what they have is better, more, greater, five times greater than what you have, can you rejoice with a brother who has so much more than you have? As much as you weep with a sister who has so much less. God wants us to show love on both sides of the equation. Chapter 44, verse 1, Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, Joseph says, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as it was light, the men were sent away, with, they with their donkeys, and they, now you've got to get this picture. Remember the night before they've been dining with them and everything's good. And they've been, the last verse says they feasted and drank freely with them. They were having a good time. And they went to sleep and slept well that night, I can tell you, my friends. And the next morning they woke up probably with a bit, a bit of a headache. And they said, well, let's get going. And they didn't even think about checking their sacks. You know, the last time around they had their money back. You'd think they'd open up the sack and go, okay, everything's good here. Nobody checks. They just kind of head on their way. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away they with their donkeys. Verse 4, they had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? This is not just a nasty trick. Read on. Joseph says to tell them, Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for Divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them, the steward did, and he spoke these words to them. He comes running up and stops them all. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Someone stole my Lord's divination cup, his divining cup. Someone got a hold of it. Which one of you guys wasn't? And they're going, oh, come on. Come on. This is not possible. They've got Simeon. They've got Benjamin. They're headed safely home. Who's got the cup? Verse 7, they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then can we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we will also be my Lord's slaves. They're so sure of themselves that they say, Fine, if you find it in someone's pack, that person dies, the rest of us are slaves, take us back, because we know we're innocent. Don't ever be so sure of your innocence. Okay? Just a little warning to us. So the steward said, Now let it be also according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the oldest, Reuben, and ending up with the youngest. And, of course, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes. And each man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city, and I can guarantee they were trembling. There are a couple of cups here that are interesting to note. Joseph has a silver cup. And in Egypt, in ancient Egypt, there was literally what was called a divining cup. Now you may wonder, why is Joseph putting his brothers through this? He's already heard their confession of sin. He's seen them plea for Benjamin's safety. He's watched them rejoice envy-free at the table with Benjamin, rejoicing for what Benjamin got, but now he puts them to the toughest test of all. Why? What is Joseph doing? Joseph wants to see what the brothers Israel will do. It's another test. Will they send another brother down to Egypt in slavery to protect their own interests? Will they do to Benjamin what they did to Joseph? If given the opportunity, hey, wait a minute, we could be rid of the youngest now. We already got rid of Joseph, but now that our father's other favorite, we could be rid of him too. They had opportunity. Joseph set it up for them. Would they take it? Joseph is still wondering, when push comes to shove, what will they do if forced to choose between their own welfare and that of their younger brother and their father? He wants to know if they're changed. Again, two cups that this reminds me of. First of all, the cup of divination. in ancient Egypt, the high rulers were often seen as priests, and Joseph was thought of as a priest. And the silver cup that he's already mentioned, the cup that he uses for divination, they believed that this cup it's kind of like reading tea leaves, that you could read the contents of a cup and divine the future. Now Joseph knows, and you and I know that it's not by a cup that he did it. It's by God that he interpreted dreams and understood what was coming. But it's interesting to me that Jesus used a cup to divine His Father's will. A cup of divining, a cup of discernment. Matthew 26:39. Jesus prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup will determine your will, Father. The cup. Jesus says, let this cup of suffering and redemption Let this cup divine your will. Now again, prophecy students, think about this. Where was the cup found? Simple question. Where's the cup found? (laughs) Benjamin's backpack. Right. It's in Benjamin's sack. When they open it up and again, the brothers begin to tremble with fear. Reminds me of a cup of trembling. A cup of trembling. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 2 says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. You might say, well, that's an interesting coincidence. This cup that causes trembling is found in, Joseph, in, in Benjamin's backpack. So what? So what's the big deal? Well, I just think it's interesting that Jerusalem is located in the region of the tribe of Benjamin. That the cup of trembling, Jerusalem, will be a cup of trembling. A cup that causes reeling to all the nations round about in the same way this cup, in Benjamin's own backpack, causes the brothers Israel to tremble, to shake with fear, to tear their clothes. The King James Version, King James Version says, rent their clothes, which doesn't mean that they, you know, let people borrow them for pay. They tore their clothes. They were absolutely scared out of their wits. A cup of trembling. Now... We're almost done, truly. Stay tuned in. The focus shifts to one character. As we began tonight, I mentioned his name, Judah. And I like Judah. And Judah does some amazing things here. Verse 14, they come back. They return to the city. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? Now the Bible teaches against divination. Joseph knows this. He's still playing a role. He's still trying to discern where they're coming from. And Judah said, (coughs) Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Hmm. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Not of your servant, not of Benjamin. Judah's not talking about the sin of someone stealing a cup. He is talking about the sin of them selling their brother Joseph into slavery 20 years before. God has found out our sin, the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. In other words, Joseph, uh, Lord of all Egypt, we're your slaves too. We will not leave here without Benjamin and if he is to be a slave we are to be your slaves but joseph said verse 17 far be it from me to do this the man in whose possession the cup has been found he shall be my slave but as for you go up in peace to your father joseph is cranking it just a little tighter a little more intense i'm giving you one more chance to get out of this judah brothers you guys can get out of here and i will just keep benjamin what are you going to do how are you going to respond And I lost my place.
1: 18. 18. Then Judas approached him and
0: said, Oh my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. He's talking about Benny. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, However, listen to this, However, watch this, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. That wording is fascinating to me. Unless Benjamin comes down you will not see my face again. What does Benjamin's name mean? Does anybody remember what Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. Son of my right hand. The son of, unless the son of my right hand comes down to where? To where? To Egypt. Well, what's Egypt a picture of in Scripture? We've talked about this. The world. Sorry. You were close. It's, an, it's a picture of the world. Unless... Unless the son of my right hand comes down to Egypt, unless Benjamin, the son of my right hand, comes back down, I will not be seen by you. You will not see my face. Now listen, Benjamin's name didn't start out Benjamin, did it? Rachel named him as she was giving birth to him and as she was dying. And knowing this, she named him Benoni. Benoni meaning the son of my sorrow. He began, he came as the son of sorrow. And now, Benjamin is the son of my right hand. Do you see the picture coming together here? Jesus came as the son of sorrow, as the man of sorrows. He came the first time, son of God, as a son of sorrow. Why? Because he had to die. Because the first visit down to earth, he would die. Sacrifice for our sins. But then God exalted him. Philippians chapter 2 tells us. God exalted him to the highest place. At the name of Jesus. It's not up there. At the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow. In heaven and on earth. And under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God exalted him. So he was like Benoni. Son of my sorrows. Became exalted. Son of my right hand. And now he waits to come down. To earth again. But check this out, unless the son of my right hand comes down, God can say, you will not see my face again. My son has got to come down. Ezekiel chapter 10 verses 1 through 22, I'll just mention this, we won't read it tonight, describes the departure of God's glory from the temple in Jerusalem. It's a tragic chapter to read because God's glory begins in the inner court. This Shekinah glory, this great cloud of glory. Also called in Hebrew the Kabbad, the weight of God's glory. It's in the temple, but it moves from that inner place in the temple as Ezekiel watches out onto the porch of the temple. And then from the porch it moves further out until it's gone. God withdrew his glory from the temple, from Jerusalem, from the people of Israel. And God would say to them, Just as Joseph says about the youngest brother, Benjamin, son of his right hand, unless the son of my right hand comes down, you will not see my face again. The only way God's glory will ever return to Israel is if they first see the son of his right hand. Jews will believe in Jesus. And it is through that belief that God's glory will return. Verse 24, we're almost done. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant my father, Judah still speaking, he's continuing his plea. We told him the words of my Lord and our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is, is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Truly, we can't see the Lord's face unless Benjamin, the son of his right hand, unless Jesus is with us. Verse 27, your servant said, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Now remember, Joseph's listening to all this, taking it in. It's got to be hard to hear you know that my wife bore me two sons and the one went out from me and I said surely he is torn in pieces and I have not seen him since. And if you take this one also Judah quoting Jacob if you take this one also from me and harm befalls him you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore when I come to your servant my father Judah says and the lad is not with us Since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. I don't have time to cover this, but his life is bound up in the lad's life. The father's life is bound up in the life of the son, and the son is bound up in the life of the father. Do you see the picture? Father and son. Jesus and the father bound up together. Going on, verse 31. If he sees that the lad is not with us, he'll die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Now listen. For your servant became surety, Judah says. Man, I like Judah. I became surety for the lad to my father saying if I do not bring him back to you then let me bear the blame before my father forever and now the lion no longer sleeps tonight the lion is wide awake verse 33 now therefore please let your servant remain instead of the lad a slave to my lord and let the lad go up with his brothers for how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Finally, wonderfully, Judah just wakes up. He steps into the gap and he says, I will take the blame. I will take the fall. As a beautiful, again, picture of Jesus. Jesus is all over the place. Judah says, Let it be me. Let him go free. Let him be saved. Let them go free. Let them be saved. I will take the the blame Judas stands up to be counted among the great ones of Israel Willing to step in and take the place of his brother, Benjamin. Finally, Joseph, finally, now has a complete picture of the repentant hearts of his brothers. And the drama hits its highest peak in the next two verses. We'll read them and we'll be done. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by them. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it and then Joseph said to his brothers then he said finally he says I am Joseph and King, the brothers are absolutely stunned what? what does this mean? we'll find out next week let's pray <laughs> Father, <laughs> Father, it's such a drama. God, it, 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 it's so amazing to me. I just love this. We're sitting here reading the Bible and we're on the edge of our seats. I mean, No movie out of Hollywood is more exciting than seeing what's happening here. God, I don't even know what to pray except would you just reveal to each of us that which we need to know. We've seen pictures of Jesus in Joseph, in Benjamin, in Judah. We see him everywhere. We see this picture of of you at work in people's lives, changing them and growing them and bringing them to repentance, changing them in the same way that you work on us and prepare us. Father, we've seen Judah just step up, taking the fall just like Jesus took the fall for us. But God, what impresses me the most in all of this is it all comes down and Joseph finally weeping in in tears cries out, I am Joseph. Father, it makes me long to hear Jesus say those words with his own name even more. To be in that moment when the clouds just split apart and Jesus says, I am Jesus. When Israel finally recognizes they're Lord and Savior and Messiah. And to be with you, Lord Jesus, on that day will be the, the greatest of all imaginable blessings up to that point. Thank you, Jesus, so much for loving us. Thank you for the process you're taking us through. And Jesus, we just pray, come quickly and reveal yourself to us for we long to see
1: you.